to episode three of the Palace Cinemas podcast. I'm Alex Moyer, National Marketing Manager for Palace Cinemas, and joining me as always is our Astor Theatre General Manager, Dr. Zach Hepburn, and our Queensland State Manager, Jordan Bastian. This week, we look at Westerns and why so many film buffs and filmmakers keep returning to them. Zach recounts the genre's history, we review a brilliant Western you can catch at home for free, then recount our favourite must-see gems of the genre. The uh, American Film Institute defines the Western as a film set in the American West that embodies the spirit and struggle and the demise of the new frontier. And really, I can't argue with that because the Western is essentially a blank canvas to me. You know, it's it's a narrative term given to a genre that really is so deep and vast that there's been so many different iterations of these narratives about uh, people engaging with nature and engaging with society on the frontier that uh, whilst I think the term Western was apparently coined in the Motion Picture magazine published in 1912, the actual Western form goes back to 1903 with The Great Train Robbery, that classic silent film uh, of the gentleman shooting uh, the gun directly at the screen which kind of freaked out everyone in the cinema. But uh, look, for me, what I find so engaging about the Western genre is the many subgenres within that. You've got, you know, the kind of classical Westerns such as uh, John Ford and Howard Hawks directed films, such as Gary Cooper, John Wayne, all those, those real matinee idol Westerns. But for me, it's the spaghetti Westerns uh, of Sergio Leone, or I'm going to say it, my best Eli Woff voice, Antonio Margheriti. Uh, but those films offer a, a real operatic canvas uh you know they were almost uh you know musical pieces in a way where you know composer Ennio Morricone uh wrote the scores prior to a lot of the films actually being shot and they would sync up the action to the music so they had this real balletic sort of open opera feel to them uh the revisionist westerns of the 70s uh, I'm also a huge fan of because they actually dismantled all the classic matinee westerns of the uh, the period, and they criticise them in a way. Uh, Sam Peckinpah's A Wild Bunch, to me, remains uh, one of the quintessential revisionist westerns because it actually looks at the, you know, incredible amount of uh, decay and misogyny and, and all these other things that were going on in those classic Western films, particularly with their treatment uh, of the, the Native American population uh, and engaged with that front on. Uh, Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained is also a great example of a revisionist Western. Uh, recently too, I think James Mangold's Logan uh, was a, a, a brilliant uh, sort of subversion of the Western inside the superhero genre. It's a, a genre that I feel is regrettably not celebrated uh, by modern filmmakers all too often, uh, but it's so deep and rich with, with so many different stories that uh, it's a genre that I certainly keep going back to. Many of the, the reasons you kind of listed, Zach, are actually very similar to my own in the sense of um, I've always loved Westerns, that they're able to disguise many different kinds of films in a single unifying genre. You know, everyone just sees it as a Western, but it can be many different kinds of films. And it's the kind of landscape where uh, immediately you know once you're in that genre, you have morality pushed to either extreme. Like you were saying, we have this kind of classic adventures. And for me, growing up, my kind of perceptions on the classic genre were like Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, Butch Cassidy, Rio Bravo, all those things that, you know, we ultimately just see as kind of cowboys and gunfights and that kind of thing. But then I really started to get into Westerns when it became, I'm going to lump in a lot of things here, but like it became more modernist, existential. They were a metaphor for what was happening politically. I think The Searchers 
does that um, brilliantly. I mean, this is a film that was made in the 1950s, but really kind of comments on um, race relations between Native Americans and the Westerners Mm -hmm. taking over land and Cave and Mrs. Miller kind of commenting on capitalism of America, but again, that kind of extreme morality sense. High Plains Drifter, where you essentially have the devil coming into town to wage on the sins of everyone within this town. And then I think what sealed it off for me was those those post-modern Westerns. So uh, Unforgiven for me, you have Clint Eastwood essentially making commentary on his whole filmography and kind of condemning the violence he's portrayed, or at least putting the violence in a more realistic perspective. For me, uh, the idea that the Western genre is really the first genre to essentially self-dismantle its own ethos and its own sort of legacy. It's seen on the surface as a very sort of stoic, sort of monotone style. You know, you know lone gunfighter rides into town, conflict ensues. But th- there's so much more to them as that. I can't really think of any other genre that has looked inward on itself so much as Westerns. And maybe that's because it's been one of the longest serving genres. I kind of, when we talked about doing Westerns, I um, was super hesitant because I I never thought that I loved them and I've never taken the time to explore them. When I thought of Westerns, I very much thought of the Spaghetti Western. I very much thought of these kind of male-centric hero pieces set in the West. And when I pushed myself, and I've watched so many over the last week, it's such a good avenue to play with tension, play with politics, especially gender politics. But Mm. like my favourite thing is this sense of the massive void that the West is. And the West is essentially just this other character that can bring so much into a situation, whether it's heightening it or creating loss or tension or freedom or chaos. It's just, it's almost like this ultimate gift to a screenwriter to have this extra force. And every single film I watched had this. And I was... So surprised that I turn around and now I love Westerns and now I can't stop watching them or watching things that I previously loved and being like, that's a Western. I didn't think of it in that construct or didn't think of that in that way and and seeing how it relates to other films that I love. Really sung out true what you just said, Jordan, of watching other things and realising, oh, that's a Western. You can see their influence just carrying over to other filmmakers, other genres. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a cyclical genre that just keeps repaying itself. If anyone listening to this hasn't started a Western Odyssey, uh, my, my only hope is this is going to be the catalyst for them to, to go out and check out as many as possible because they, they do have a dialogue with each other and the more you engage with the genre, the more you can see the, the way each film comments on the film before it or the film coming next. It's, it's, a, it's a real interesting diagram. Well, in terms of um, educating our audience potentially, we're going to recommend a film uh, that you can all catch for free on, on an app called Tubi, uh, spelled T-U-B-I, and that is The Shooting. Leland Drum, a good friend, shot dead. I don't know what and buried in this spot by Coley Bowyard, his good friend, in April. The shooting is this really eerie existential Western, and the film critic Jonathan Rosenbaum, uh, upon its release, coined the phrase acid Western, uh, which I, I think is fantastic. And essentially Dead Man is also an acid Western, but uh, the shooting did it first, and that was in 1966. And it's directed by a gentleman named Monty Hellman. Give him a Google uh, because he directed a, a film called Tulane Blacktop, which is one of my favourite films of all time. But before they got onto uh, the Tulane Blacktop, uh, they shot a film called The Shooting 
which was produced by Jack Nicholson, who also stars in the film. But the story is quite simple. Uh, two bounty hunters are approached by a mysterious woman who offers them a job, and uh, it's a revenge mission. And they're in the desert, and it's suddenly further complicated by an enigmatic stranger, played by Nicholson, who seems to delight in sadistically toying with the two men as they go in this strange odyssey through this very weird Wild West, which is, i got to be honest, kind of unlike any other version of the West that I've seen personified on screen. And it all leads to a very provocating and somewhat confusing ending, but that's all part of the journey. Um, funnily enough, the film was actually shot in 1965, uh, back-to-back with uh, director Monty Hellman's other Western, Wild the Whirlwind, which is also great. It's got Harry Dean Stanton in it. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, these films really struggled to find uh, US distribution rights and were eventually purchased by a company who sat on them for years and then never actually released them into cinemas. They went directly to TV. So for years, both Ride the Whirlwind and the shooting kind of languished in this no man's land of, uh, you know, complete and utter, you know, no one knew what they were. Like there was just these kind of Western films that people had shot and they just kind of just sat on the shelf. So uh, it was only until recently, uh, particularly when the Criterion Collection uh, re-released both films on Blu-ray, that they started to get a little bit more notoriety. But they've always been sort of Western folklore in a way. Many ways that we saw these films initially uh, was through uh, bootleg DVDs and, and VHS tapes because they were so seldomly available uh, but now luckily uh, better HD versions are freely available for, for people to enjoy and it's it's really one of those films that you have to see to believe so what did you guys think of it? I liked what you were saying to me earlier about um, how this was actually produced by Jack Nicholson before he was famous. This is uh, just post Nicholson doing uh, his bit part in Roger Corman's Little Shop of Horrors. This was the first time I was watching it and then it comes up, you know, produced by Jack Nicholson. And I thought, oh, you know, I must have done this when he was in his heyday. But he, he, was, he was making these kinds of films before he had any sort of notoriety. It's also interesting because he met the writer in an acting class as well. And so it's just that classic idea of two people wanting to do bigger, better things, coming together to make their own luck in this industry, which I also love. The weirdly iconic Jack Nicholson sharp grin is on full display here too. Like even before that became a cliche, like (laughs) Nicholson is essentially grinning this entire film and you just know he is going to do something awful. So, yeah, this is a film that I had actually purchased once it came out on the Criterion Collection, but I had never actually sat down to watch it. One of, the so, great, one of the great unwrapped Criterions. Exactly. I, have, I have a number of those. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've still got a few to get through. When you start the film, it's fairly, you know, typical of what you would expect from a classic Western. Quickly kind of go somewhere, you're thinking, okay, this isn't your, your standard Western. But what I love most about it was it, it allowed you to project your own narrative on top of it as in it doesn't leave you with too much ambiguity but if you wanted to take it as a straight a to b story you could typically with films that require the audience to do a lot of work i'm not i'm not the biggest fan maybe i'm just lazy audience member but i do love the being given the option to project my own narrative quite simply and i think this film is it's just one of those films where it does imagine each scenario a million different ways i think it plays on conventions of what we expect to become of characters based on the typical conventions of what you've seen in westerns the kind of the bumbling but good-natured friend the toughened uh, bounty hunter that's seen too many bad things and wants to make things right you you get none of that basically upends every perceived idea of what you have characters doing or not doing. 
Um, but then ultimately there's like when I watched when I watched Spike Jones adaptation, there's one line I can remember, and that's when Brian Cox says to uh, Nicolas Cage's character, we get him in the end, you've got to hit. And like this is like a perfect example of that film where it just completely gets you in the air. Even if you find potentially the, the amount of work you have to do as an audience member um, tiring, once you get to that end point, it, yeah, it's genuine, like, kind of wow moment. I love the woman in this lead role as well. She, she enters this story kind of shooting her own horse, which for all we know is totally fine. Um, and just taking them astray and being horrifically bratish, but dragging them more and more into isolation and more and more into menace from the very get-go. And she just does it so well to the point where when she teams up with Nicholson, it's just this, like, this marriage of menace that's so wonderful to watch on the screen. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't believe that they shot this film for $75,000. I mean, mm. it, it, it is one of the great success stories that no one ever saw up until very recently. Uh, you know, and, and as I said, it's, it's, it's been the thing of legend for a number of years, but every time it comes around to a new audience, people engage with it and, and find something to... Um, to take home from it. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a really brilliant film. And, you know, again, it reminds me a lot of uh, Jodorowsky's El Topo, uh, and that was actually made, you know, a few years later. But, again, there's these long passages of nothingness. Um, and you just kind of, if you're an audience, I mean, you just sort of like haze out during that and then you kind of snap back in when something happens. And I think that's a really blissful experience where, you know, it's almost like the Westerners wallpaper. And I, I love that kind of motif. Those long stretches really help define those key moments mm. just so beautifully. As you were saying, Alex, you know, it, it's all about the, the momentum to, to build that tension. And I think, you know, for, for, for a film that's made on a shoestring budget with, you know, under five performers, the fact that it can kind of grasp you and, and take you on this journey and, and, and it, to the very last minute you're kind of like, what's going to happen? Where's this going? I mean, that, it, it's almost a theatrical piece in a way. And that's what is sort of so impressed by is this less is more quality to the film of you know without them having done too much at all i mean it's literal simple camera cuts they've imposed this kind of potentially supernatural element on the film like a great metaphor of a journey to hades or it could just be you know a simple western that you know it's just hard, hard going hard slog good thing about his cameras the camera shots as well is he just he just leaves the camera there and it, everything is existing as it exists rather than being focused. It's showing you that this world is bigger than just what we perceive it to be. The tension throughout it and the building of the tension. I love that it's made by people that genuinely just wanted to make a good film, that just wanted to do what they do best and use their skills to the best of their ability. I was so surprised by how much I liked it. For me, it's really one of those formative films when you see it, because I saw it when I was in later years in uni initially, um, and it's kind of reminded me in a way of Evil Dead, where you you, you see uh, a group of young filmmakers who have just gone out into the middle of nowhere, got a, a very small budget together, and have just created something that is just this story that propels you forward. And I think, you know, it's a simplistic story, but there's so many different things going on with it. And I think that best sort of debut films and the best sort of like early work films where they're not ostentatious, they're very simple, but they have this longevity. And the fact that we're still sitting here now talking about a film that the initial 
film distributors didn't even want to release it is a real testament to its longevity and and the creative ingenuity of, of everyone involved. Because of its first release was on television, I would love to see how it was received on television back then as well because I do think it is quite different and I do think it would have been a tough slog to sell and watch. I would have loved to have seen where they put the ad breaks. Yeah. Yeah, because so, that, that was always an art form in of itself. Like, where, where did the ad break come? Uh, and for this film where large passages of nothing really happens, uh, you know, having a, a five-minute ad break in between would be a real endurance test. But now we're just going to quickly touch on some of the must-see gems of the genre that we think you should check out. One of the films that really struck me, which is also on Tubi, is uh, Kelly Reichardt's Meek's Cutoff. It's about this three families who hire a guide called Stephen Meek to help them over the Cascade Mountains and they very quickly become lost after he tries to take them through a a secret route of his. They are three weeks overrun. They start running out of food and running out of water and they're at full desperation when a Native American comes across their path and they're torn between trusting the man that's meant to be leading them on this journey and has already led them astray and what is essentially their natural-born enemy at this time. It is incredibly slow, but in a way that makes you stop and truly appreciate what they went through on these hard, horrific journeys across the Oregon Trail um, and how they lived their lives. And it also fuels the sense of desperation you get when they realise that they are lost and the families start to clue in. My favourite thing, which very much leads back to that Western theme, is the sense of power dynamics through gender that come through when all of the women start to get very frustrated at their lack of ability to help make decisions. And they're really the ones that question Meek's roots and behaviours and want to go with this guide to safety and, and their interactions with their children. Just the desperation of running out of resources, their isolation, and just that expansive landscape that you're continually struck with just really adds to the terror and the horror that they're facing. Well worth a watch. Just side note, though, it is very slow and you need to be in that mood and just go along with the ride and truly appreciate it because I think it is a stunning piece of work. So that's what you think, that we're lost? I'd say that seems about the right word for it. We're not lost. We're not lost. We're just finding our way. I certainly hope so. We're going to make it all right. Oh, you don't need to patronise me, Mr. Meek. Well, now I think you're flirting with me, man. You don't know much about women, do you, Stephen Meek? Uh, look, for me too, you know, we touched on it uh, just when we were speaking about Jordan's choice, but Dead Man really is, for me, one of the quintessential modern Westerns, but it's also one of the best in the genre. And it's really because it's a fantastic amalgamation of poetry, style, music, and and just sort of abstract ideas all kind of coming together to make a commentary on the Western but also American culture. The reason why I particularly like this film is its engagement with the commentary on the treatment of uh, Native Americans uh, during that time but also within the Western genre. And the story is essentially quite simple. Again, uh, an accountant played by Johnny Depp uh, arrives in a town. The town is called Machine, which I think is really cool. Uh, and uh, he gets caught up in the middle of a lover's quarrel, gets shot, and then goes on this sort of odyssey where he meets up uh, with a Native American who has been uh, outcast by his tribe. And together they they guide each other on this sort of spiritual journey. And it's all punctuated by this 
absolutely incredible film score by Neil Young where there's this sort of just incessant sort of hum and this sort of like electrical rattle, uh, which we all know from from Neil Young's music. Uh, But it's just so pitch perfect for the black and white cinematography that Robbie Mueller put together this film. Jim Jarmusch, I think it's the best he's ever been really. And, And it's just an incredible visceral experience and um i'll uh, i'll confess this now on, on the podcast airwaves uh i snuck into this film uh <laughs> when it was rated r uh i was only about two years away from uh the 18 plus uh demographic but i uh, I, I did that and it was a real formative experience because uh you know it's it's something that i don't think i've ever seen another film like it i don't think uh, a filmmaker has ever touched anything near this and uh, I think that's down to the Neil Young score but also the fact that this film not only has Crispin Glover uh, delivering a a 15-minute opening scene monologue but it also has Iggy Pop in the film and the fact that you can have Neil Young, Jim Jarmusch, Iggy Pop and Crispin Glover all in the one 90-minute circumference really if that's not cinematic gold I don't know what what do you, you know, I've had it up to here with this Indian malarkey. I haven't understood a single word you've said since I met you. Not one single word. Are you sure you have no tobacco? When we were talking about doing Westerns, we were all talking about the film we would choose. And I think we all sort of chose something a little bit more classical. And then I think we've all changed our minds and gone with something a little bit more postmodern or revisionist, as we were sort of saying, there's reasons why we love the genre. Like... I know you wanted to do Butch Cassidy, Zach, and I was going to do like Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. But I've ended up changing my choice as well to a film I think has definitely got to be within my top five of all time, and that's The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. This is a film released in 2007. It's kind of phenomenal that it got made. I mean, it was produced by Warner Brothers, Brad Pitt in the lead, Casey Affleck. You know, when people say, oh, cinema is dead and, you know, Hollywood doesn't make good films anymore. Like, they made this in 2007. Um, I first saw it with a, a group of uh, other other people that all hated it. And I came out of it and because of such hatred towards it. I wasn't sure. I was like, well, did And that I just, it's one of the films I think I've rewatched the most. And for the most part, I think one of the reasons I love it is, yeah, it's, it's people at the height of their craft, um, Brad Pitt's never been better. Uh, Roger Deakins, you know, he's won two Oscars now, but he should have won one for this for his cinematography, um, directed by someone who I wish would make a lot more films, and that's director Andrew Dominic, and scored by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. And that was my first real foray into Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, and also subsequently, I think, one of the soundtracks I play the most. People really talk about it as being a kind of postmodern film in the sense of it's the arguable birth of the American celebrity, but you have Brad Pitt, who is arguably the, the, the celebrity of our generation, playing Jesse James, and the commentary on American celebrity and the effect that, that celebrity can have on a person. Really, what it was for me that I love so much about the film is it's it's a film about male bullying. So many Westerns portray bullying, especially male bullying, yet, you know, a hero comes along to save the victim or the victim comes along and, and saves themselves. You know, we see that in films like Shane or High Noon, those kind of Westerns, and, and those conventions still continue in Hollywood today. But here, Robert Ford, he's just a victim. We witness the consequences of bullying, best kind of Shakespearean tragedy, but there isn't a hero here to save him 
and we see those consequences play out in full. Finally, why I love it is the word assassination is arguable. Uh, I won't go into it any more than that, but there's another Jesse James film called The Long Riders, which has one of the best shootouts I think I've seen in any Western. But after that finishes, they, they quickly kind of go through the Jesse James assassination. And this is the film that kind of builds into that and how that happened. You've really eloquently summed up the film there, Alex. I mean, I think it's it's a tremendous work. I saw it in the cinema when it was released as well. And I remember being, funnily enough, at, at the Kino cinema, which is a part of the, uh, the Palace Circuit. And uh, someone stood up, at the end of it, this was a daytime session. They said, well, what was all that about? And then sort of uh, walked out uh, of the cinema. But, I mean, it, it's such a, a beautiful film. It, you know, comments on all those things you mentioned, but it, it also comments on legacy and the idea of creating your own myth and, and how myth is passed on through generations. And to this day, I think it has one of the best theatrical trailers I've ever seen in there. Yeah. A beautiful summation of the entire film. Uh, I know Dominic had a lot of battles with the studio, and, and, and Pitt had to fight a lot of those battles too. Uh, but I'm so glad that 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 film exists, and uh, I, I know it's something that uh, I think, uh, in some capacity, we've all programmed in in, in some way uh, retrospectively. And it's a film that always gets an audience because the, the people that know it love it. The people that know it want to share it with someone else. I've been a nobody all my life. I know I won't get this one opportunity and you can bet your life I'm not going to spoil it. Seems to me if you have something to confess, you spit it out now. And that wraps it up for episode three. Join us next time as our genre deconstruction continues, looking at horror films, And for people like me, some great horror films to watch, even if you're usually not a fan.